Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name is Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. This time I chatted to Laura Boyd. Laura is an entertainment reporter at STV. However, a diagnosis of chronic myeloid leukemia at the height of that career impacted many aspects of her life that many take for granted. Thanks for coming, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. So I wonder whether you could um, just quickly start by introducing yourself at what you were diagnosed with. Yeah, so I'm Laura Boyd, as you said, and chronic myeloid leukemia, it'll be 12 years ago. And yeah, pretty much, I guess for most people, it's it's not what you expect to hear, but I have been living with it for that period now and continue to carry on with it. So you were um, 28 when you were diagnosed, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so quite young for a CML patient, but I'm sure we can come back to that later in the podcast. But I wonder whether we could um, just uh, start by talking about your signs and symptoms before diagnosis, as sort of to contextualise your whole experience. So what, if any, symptoms did you have before you were diagnosed with CML? So I had quite a few. Um, I had had a really busy summer, so it was 2009, Randomly, it was the year that Susan Boyle shot to fame in Britain's Got Talent. And that was, I mean, in the world, that was a big deal. But in Scotland, that was a a very big deal. And so I was kind of covering that story for Mm -hmm. an entertainment reporter. So I was covering that and um, was really busy. I was also then covering things like festivals in the summer. So running around all over the place. And I just felt really run down and on holiday to Greece. Um... My gums, I remember, like the top of my mouth went really swollen, a big sore on the top and I could hardly eat for a week. And when I look back on pictures as well, I was really giddy, you know, no matter how much sun I got, I just couldn't kind of take a colour. And I just felt, yeah, pretty like my stomach was kind of sore and just so, so yuck, basically, is <laughs> the only way I can describe it. But I just thought that I was generally run down um and so went and they said they would do some blood tests maybe to look at things like I guess Crohn's and stuff like that just to see what was going on but not overly concerned um so it was about a week later and I actually had a really busy day at work so I kind of thought oh I'm feeling okay I might not go but luckily I went along for the blood tests um had them in the morning and then in fact I remember the nurse weighed me and I was maybe about five or six pounds later, which I had not expected. And she was like, oh, you, you've lost weight. And I was thinking, yes, I was very excited about this. Uh, little did I know. Um, but yeah, I went back to work after that. And I remember every time I stood up, I felt like I was going to collapse. And my hands were sweaty. And um, yeah, I phoned the doctor because I thought this just this just isn't right. And they told me to come down immediately. Um, and again, that was probably quite quite odd. You know, they're normally so busy that you struggle to get an appointment. But again, didn't think anything of it. Went in and um, they said they had already had the blood tests back within a few hours and that I had cancer. And that was it. That was the, the bombshell. It's fair to say, and we hear this all the time from people, that you didn't associate your symptoms with anything serious and it was all busy, busy at work and that sort of thing. Yeah, I just had no idea whatsoever. I mean, I think, you know, I was aware of leukemia and mostly through, as I have to say, like TV programs and things. And I think I always thought of it as something young kids got. Randomly, I remembered an episode of Home and Away. 
where the girl had leukemia and her symptoms were a lot of bruising. And I was, I mean, I'm quite a kind of clumsy person anyway. So, you know, I did bruise quite easily. I wasn't overly aware of anything like that. It's just not something I thought of. And now when I look back, my symptoms were quite strange and quite varied as well, because actually I remember as well, I had kind of chest pain running up to two. And I, I actually took, it must have been quite severe because I took myself up to casualty one night. And uh, they just said that, oh, it could be like inflammation of the, the chest or, you know, that again, they didn't seem that concerned. So I think I just kind of thought, oh, just got a cold, I'm just run down. But so it was a complete shock when they told me that it, it was cancer and it transpired it was leukaemia. Mm, I'm sure it was. And did you connect those varied symptoms together? So you talked about all the different things you had but did you ever put them together as one package or did you put them down to different things individually I just put them down to kind of different things or again you know that I was just maybe you know I was quite prone to when I was run down my my gum swelling it seemed to be my kind of weak point um and I just thought that was probably what it was I must just have been exhausted but I do now when I look back on it I remember kind of lying at night when I had the chest pain and things and thinking this is really odd you know this this is odd but it never crossed my mind how serious yeah I think we all make the mistake sometimes of ignoring when we don't feel right and and not not seeking help so I mean you you did eventually seek help and although they didn't think it was cancer they did at least give you a blood test which is what is absolutely key for leukemia I mean are you you grateful for that initial doctor for realizing that's what you needed chronic myeloid leukemia the type I have it can be quite slow progressing so there's a chance I could have had that for quite a long time and when I look back in the years running up to that I had things like very swollen glands I remember having like a real lump under my armpit and going to the doctor and he didn't even touch it and he said to me he was an older doctor he said um do you wear deodorant and I was like yes and uh, he said yeah I mean all the chemicals and deodorant and stuff you'll just have to stop wearing that and that was his advice now he didn't even touch that and when I look back on it I'm like gosh I mean that's a sign of so many different types of cancer. It could have been breast cancer or, or anything. He didn't look into that. And um, I, I now think, gosh, I wish I had pushed a bit more, but I'm so grateful for, it was actually um, a locum doctor that was on a, a kind of stand-in one that day when I went with the symptoms and he was the one that said, we're going to do some blood tests. And actually, I think when they weighed, when the nurse weighed me, I remember her saying, hmm, I'm just going to do a few extra here. So I don't know whether she maybe thought about it or thought there was something more you know more at hand here so yeah I think that's something I've learned is that you know it's very difficult but I hear so many stories of people being dismissed and I think really a lot of the time in the back of your mind you know there's something not quite right which when I look back on it I definitely you know that that was kind of lingering in the back of my mind I knew it wasn't it wasn't normal basically yeah and it's interesting what you say about the the doctors dismissing it as something that's perhaps more more common like an allergy to a skin rash or something like that because I think the challenge for us when talking about rare illnesses is we're not saying it's always going to be leukemia we're saying just 
just check just in case that's the key message so it's, it's interesting that you had that experience but I'm glad those people did pick it up and it's interesting what you say about the nurse as well because I think they're an often forgotten group of people that you come into contact with um, had you seen a nurse much before but you were ill with leukemia not really so she she was the nurse at the doctor's surgery um and she you know other than for smears and things I hadn't really seen her but I just remember her being so helpful then mm. and that, that Anytime I had, I kind of saw her after that, she was really lovely and just really, really helpful. And actually, my experience of nurses at the Beetson Centre in Glasgow, which is the, the cancer hospital, um, has been incredible. And, and every three months now, I mainly see a nurse, uh, Nurse Ruth Mitchell, who's just, you know, she she has been absolutely brilliant I think the doctors tend to get the, the glory, so they do an amazing job, but that are, you know, just as skilled and, and can be really helpful. And they're, they're, they're very good and, and sympathetic and, and helpful and, you know, perhaps have a bit more time and kind of understanding with patients, which is, is really needed. I agree. I think nurses don't get the, the credit they deserve always, especially ones in primary care, but also ones in, in, in hospitals and things as well. So you decided to talk to us today about your experience. And I, I guess I wanted to ask why you think it's important to raise awareness of, of the signs and symptoms of leukaemia. Why did you sort of choose to pick up our invitation uh, for this evening? Fantastic charity, you know, for starters. But, but um, it's, I think, because I was so unaware. Of, I think also initially when I heard leukaemia, I just thought there was a thing called leukemia. I didn't realise there was so many different versions of it and variants of it and that, you know, so many different ages could get it. There was different treatment required. I mean, it really is, you know, a kind of whole other world that I don't think people are really that aware of. So I think with any illness, the earlier you get diagnosed, the more chance you stand of, you know, kind of treating it and, and catching. Um, and so I was really, really keen to, to speak out and raise awareness of it. I think also, there's, I mean, it's got so much better, obviously, but there's still a stigma attached to, to cancer and people hear the word and think you're going to die. I heard the word and my first question was, am I going to die? Um, and for me, throughout this whole journey, if you like, I know that's such a cliche. It's been, um, it has been so important to try and show people that, you know, and I, I know not every story has a happy ending, but I have been able to live my life to the full. And, um, you know, there there have been highs and lows with, with treatment and things, but it's not been a death sentence yet I've had 12 amazing years and hopefully we'll, we'll go on to have many more and if that can give a little bit of hope to anyone going through it then um, you know that that's an incredible thing and actually I, I have spoken out about it because my job out in Scotland is you know on television and so it's been lovely to be able to use that platform, I guess, I've done little bits of it on news, but more so like in the Scottish press and in newspapers and things, I've been able to talk about my experience. And I have had people contact me through social media, through email, through my blog or whatever, just to say that's helped them. And if me telling my story can do that, then that's got to be worthwhile. Definitely. I don't think we could do all this work without people like you sharing and raising awareness. So thank you for that. It's really, it's really helpful. 
Well, the other side of it is quite therapeutic as okay. well because I don't have to to shy away from it and you know I can there's a slight dark side to it as well like a dark sense of humor about it as well you know my friends will we will joke about things like you know I'll tell them to make me a cup of tea because you know I've got cancer I can't possibly do that and <laughs> which is turning a horrendous situation into a positive but you know you've I think because I have been so open about it people are more likely to talk about it and that that actually makes me feel better. I don't want it to define me, but it is part of my life. There's no shying away from that. And, you know, I have to take medication every day. I'm at hospital every three months. It affected my chance to have a baby. It's a, it is a big part of my life. And, um, you know, it, it certainly helped me to talk about it. And then through that to find other people going through similar things. Yeah, I don't think you're the first person to say it's therapeutic and certainly not the first person to um, play the cancer card, I think it's called. <laughs> Definitely not the <laughs> first, not the first. <laughs> um, I wanted to sort of chat about the the fact that CML is a chronic illness a little bit more and you touched on it a little bit already, but when you were diagnosed, like, was all you heard the word cancer or the word leukaemia and associated with cancer and how long did it take for you to sort of come to terms with the fact it, it wasn't sort of the same as as what you expect cancer to be? So initially I heard the word cancer and I wasn't told I had leukaemia so it was handled in quite a strange way so I was told I had cancer asked what kind it was and the doctor said oh I can't you know it's not come back definitive but um you know we need to send you to hospital tomorrow to find out so therefore I was going to have 24 hours just knowing I had cancer not knowing if you know in my head I was thinking I'm not going to last the night that was immediately what I was thinking because I felt awful at that point and um, then he mentioned he kind of mumbled something about bone marrow there was no mention of leukemia it was bone marrow and then it wasn't until I left the doctor's surgery that at that kind I thought bone marrow is leukemia and you know kind of started to to kind of process it then and actually ended up going to casualty again that night because I because I was having these chest pains and I did feel so ill and I was so left with so little information like zero information all I knew was I had cancer and I was terrified so that and all these pains and things I thought I need to be in hospital and I've I've actually done kind of some courses with the Beatson or you know and with my my doctors in training student doctors and how best to handle and and kind of breaking the news and things and that was one thing I said was that even you know for some people it it might be great to to go home after that initial diagnosis but you need more information and for me if it was that I wasn't able to find out until the next day I almost wanted to be in hospital because I just felt so vulnerable I just I had no idea what was going on so it's been quite interesting to speak about that the next day I did go to hospital and the doctor sat me down and she was like, what, what are your thoughts here? What, what's your understanding of it? And I told her and I said, I, you know, I, said, I just feel like I'm going to die. And she immediately said, you're not going to die. There are many things we can do. There's this drug and this is how this works. And I remember her also going, I'm going to go and get you a cup of tea. And she did that. And then we started the whole process of, of what was going to happen. And from there on, everyone was so good explaining and just taking the time and you know giving that that bit of hope and things so that's when I started to be like right okay I've got this and I can take it a day at a time and 
you know, get on the right treatment plan and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, I would say the first 24 hours were absolute hell. But thankfully, once I got to speak to the proper doctors, then it started to get in that, you know, I could possibly live with this and, and you know, carry on. I'm so glad you are helping sort of future doctors to deliver that diagnosis better because it's something we hear a shocking amount about is people diagnosed with chronic leukemia are told it's a good cancer at least they're not going to die immediately but but when you're given a diagnosis of anything it doesn't matter what it is you're still ill and and, (laughs) it baffles me that attitude I mean I can understand it but it really baffles me personally yeah it was terrifying and then I think also you know as you do I came home Googled, which I know they, they tell you not to do, but you do, because especially when you have no information. And a lot of what I could find was quite outdated at that time. And it was like prognosis, three to five years. And, and immediately you're like, oh, you know, you just, and then you're bombarded with information. And, and so, um, and there are a lot of forums and things out there, which is brilliant. But again, they're not, they're not medical, you know, as such. So, People are kind of talking about things that might be relevant to you. That's great. But everyone's experience of it is different. And sometimes there's a lot of kind of fear and, you know, there, there's it's difficult. I think you, especially with things like forums and stuff, you have to use them or Facebook groups, or whatever. You have to use them carefully because there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. Since I got diagnosed, I have found that on certain days I find I'm quite depressed or I can be quite anxious and the leukemia has affected us with that quite a bit and it impacts on your daily life quite a lot. I found it quite hard to manage at times when I didn't know what my life expectancy was going to be or what was going to happen next. Sarah Jane is just one of the people affected by blood cancer to benefit from our Anne Ashley Counselling Fund. Our grants fund up to six sessions, allowing you to explore the impact of a diagnosis with a professional. To find out more and apply, search Anne Ashley Counselling Fund on our website or call our helpline team on 080 88 010 444. Somebody explained it to me as people only share the negatives on Facebook, otherwise why would they share it? And that, and you never really think about it and, until someone points out the obvious. So yeah, no, you're right about Facebook groups. So you you say you came first slowly came to terms with the you know the fact that it's not a sort of immediate life threatening illness but you know mentally has it been is it, is it difficult to live day to day with an incurable cancer is that a challenge for you I mean I I think I read somewhere when I was doing some research about how you how you said people forget sometimes that you you have it like your friends assume you're cured I mean is is that one of the biggest challenges for you it's such a strange thing because I suppose in a way that's great but then also it's easy for people to forget and and you can be struggling with it you know and I kind of think like even today I was at hospital having all my blood tests and things and then I just went straight into work and you know people knew because I put a post about it on on social media because I always try and keep everything quite real because I've had a full weekend of partying and like living life to the full and that's been all over social media but then I'm like well actually you know I should show that everything isn't all rosy because you know I'm still there having to give tons of blood this morning and um, and mentally I find when I go to hospital that's the most difficult day just because it brings it 
all all back and it's it's not bad they're amazing at the hospital it's a great place but I think that's when the the reality sets in but yeah it's it is a struggle because people do think you're cured and actually I probably would ever be cured I'm not I'm not sure I know um obviously a lot of people there are a lot of trials and people are coming off drugs and things uh, but I attempted to come off my drugs a few years ago, so we'll probably move on to to try for a baby, and the cancer increased. So that made me very aware that it is still there, and um, I am still living with it. So it doesn't haunt me daily, but it's always in the back of my mind. It's it's always there, and I think anyone with it, you you just always think as soon as you get ill, you're like, is this related to cancer? Have the drugs stopped working? And because I had, um, I was on Gleevec imatinib at the start and that did kind of plateau and didn't bring the cancer down kind of low enough so I've changed drug onto nilotinib and I'm doing really well on that but that is always at the back of your mind and you know there's there is always that idea that you might need a a transplant um, or that things could stop working so yeah it's it's there and I think that's why when you hear people say oh, it's a good cancer or, oh, do you still have that? Or, you know, that kind of thing. It's quite dismissive. And you think, well, actually, you know, I have 12 years after this has been my my life, you know, and I may only take four tablets a day or whatever, but actually it's still quite a big deal. You know, it, it is there. So um, I think that's what I would say to anyone going through it as well is that that don't be ashamed or embarrassed about feeling like you're not well because you aren't and I think that's you you do slightly have that guilt of yeah you know on the outside I look fine but actually I'm living with this and it's okay to feel rubbish about that yeah definitely I think that's a really important message and I think there are also a lot of researchers out there who think CML is a bit of a done deal but as you say that you do live with the fear that those treatments will stop working and it does only for a small percentage of CML patients but there are still some for whom these amazing treatments that we we found don't work forever and yeah I I get very annoyed with people who say an illness is a done deal when there are still people sort of dealing with the with the after effects of it so I think that brings us nicely on to um, something really important that uh, that you've shared in the in the press before, and that's your struggle, if you don't mind me using that word. I couldn't think of a better word to become pregnant and have a, a child of your own. Do you just want to share that story with with the listeners for me? Yeah, of course. So, um, well, if we take it back to the start, obviously, you know, I was in my my twenties, and so children were on my mind, but I was very much also enjoying life and enjoying partying and working and things like that so I I didn't necessarily want them at that point but I remember asking will I be able to have children and the answer was you should be fine we'll cross that bridge when we come to almost so it was more about let's get everything else under control before we start to think about that so a good few years ago it did come to the point where I wanted to think about that and um, my doctor said right we will bring you off your drugs and you can try so now I think we were only like three months in and, you know, it can take quite a while to for, to get pregnant. So I remember going for, and I think at that point I was possibly having checkups every two weeks just to make sure everything was okay. And I remember going for one of the, the two week checkups, just thinking it would be fine. And the doctor said to me, 
we need to stop. You need to go back on your drugs. Um, if you carry on like this, basically, we could get to the point where the cancer increases too much. You get to you get pregnant at six months. We have to decide whether we save you or save the baby. And again, that was just as devastating, probably if not more actually than than hearing about the cancer itself, because there was every kind of emotion there. All I wanted was a child. I had always wanted a baby from when I was a wee girl. It felt like cancer had robbed me of yet another thing. It was like, an, it was literally like a door slamming. And I knew it was so serious because my doctor, the Beatson, was absolutely incredible. And she even got slightly emotional and she wasn't like that at all she was she was actually a top scientist um leading leukemia scientist but she was like I cannot let you do this I can't we can't put you through that or put the baby through that or whatever so that was horrendous I had a really kind of awful period when I looked like it looked like I just wouldn't be able to have children and that was terrifying and I know I actually have a friend there there's a girl I met through doing my blog um, who's a bit younger and she's now actually had two children and she has chronic myeloid leukemia and she managed to come off her drugs and you know it wasn't it wasn't easy but it, she never got so ill that it you know it got to that kind of stage but um, and I think there are quite a few people but for me that just wasn't going to be the case so yeah that was a pretty horrific time and that was until my sister-in-law asked to come over one night and she out of the blue offered to be our surrogate, which was just the most incredible moment ever. That's amazing um, that someone would just offer to do that for you out of the blue. I wanted to very briefly go back to something you said about at the point of diagnosis. I mean, do you wish the conversation had been had at that point in a bit more detail like if you could have frozen your eggs or did it all did they do everything they were supposed to do do you think they did at the time I think and my daughter was so thorough but now looking back and at what we subsequently went through I actually think yeah freezing the eggs at that point would have been a good thing because we then had to do that, you know, as as part of the the surrogacy process. So, yes, I think I think for any woman of childbearing age who wants to have children, who is touched by some form of cancer, I, I think if that option is available to you, then then do it, um, because it would be better to be safe than sorry. Definitely, and. So to pat to your sister-in-law, she comes over and she says, <laughs> I can't imagine having the conversation. I mean, did you have any concerns about the surrogacy process? Because I know it, it can be a bit controversial in, in you know, if you, there, there are many laws protecting you should, for example, someone decide that they want to keep the baby. It, they, it's a quite a grey area in law. I was reading up on it earlier. Were you aware of that? Were, did you have any concerns at all? I wasn't aware of, of how complicated it would be. And at that point, it just seemed like the most incredible and exciting and life-changing and life-giving opportunity. So, you know, it, it literally was like we, we hadn't discussed her in this. Just She just decided she's got two children of her own, didn't want any more. And that was it. So um, it wasn't until we started kind of going through the process, the hospital, that you know, all those kind of grey areas came to light. Um, however, 
again, I was so lucky because she was my sister-in-law and I trusted her with, with everything. And I never felt that, that she was going to turn around and say, I'm going to keep the baby. Whereas I think if it was someone I didn't know and that's not a criticism of it because there are so many amazing organisations and so many amazing people out there that, that do do this. But I think that would always be in the back of my mind if I if I didn't know them, that that might be the outcome at the end. Whereas because it was someone I knew so well, I was so relaxed and that, that kind of just was taken away. But it was a very difficult and, and long process. Um, you know, I think... For anyone who's maybe been through IVF or whatever, that in itself is complicated. And then you add another, a third person into the mix of that is, is a crazy kind of process. And as you see, the legal side of it is very grey and, and what documents you need and, you know, what, what you're advised to sign, but what you actually have to legally and things like that is, um, yeah, it was a tough process, but with the most incredible outcome. Definitely. And she's two now, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? No, she'll be two in November. So um, all, almost there, but yeah, just an absolute um, ball of fire. She's, <laughs> she's wild and uh, amazing and hilarious. So yeah, it's never felt actually since I've had her, it's never felt, in fact, the whole way through that pregnancy, and obviously it wasn't me carrying her, but it never felt unnatural if that's it. I know that'll sound weird because I was obviously having a baby but it wasn't me carrying it but it just felt like the most natural thing in the world and you know we were all in the the birthing suite together and I got to pull her out and yeah she's she's never not felt like mine which is um or ours you know my husband and I and it's just that's that's amazing and um I think that has been so important to talk about because again to me surrogacy was something that Kim Kardashian did or you know movie stars did it wasn't something I was that aware of in the UK or you know it was maybe something you heard about more with um, gay couples maybe going down that route um, for obvious reasons but it's I know again I've had people come to me and go oh actually I didn't know I never thought of that as an option and I think it's maybe something actually as well that that more cancer charities or or hospitals could do with kind of looking into and offering people advice on because it wasn't something that you know was kind of discussed as an obvious option but you know it was kind of more so that we found out about that ourselves um but I think that would be really good to do is to you know for for women of a certain age just to let them know that there is that route that you could possibly go down Definitely. Um, we've just started a lady support group and they mentioned a lot of these issues and I agree with it. It's, it's something, it's appreciated more now that cancer affects your entire life, but the level of detail that you need to go in to make sure people feel supported, whatever their circumstances is, you know, we've got a lot more work to do. So yeah. No, that's a really important point. I wanted to come next to the COVID pandemic. I don't know at what point we can stop talking in the podcast about COVID. It's, <laughs> we're like 16, 16, 17 months and counting. But I think it, it, it's been such a massive thing for blood cancer patients. The vast majority of them were asked to shield and were told they're clinically extremely vulnerable. I know CML patients have, have since you know been considered perhaps less vulnerable than other blood cancer patients. But were you told right at the beginning that 
you should consider yourself vulnerable? And if so, how did, how did that feel to, to be told that information? Well, I remember this and it, for some reason when I play it over in my mind, it seems like something out of a movie, but I remember sitting watching the TV right at the start and Boris Johnson specifically mentioning leukemia as, you know, being one of the vulnerable categories. And again, it's that thing of generalising leukemia, which I understand they're not going to split it into to different divisions there. But I, I remember crying because I just thought, I mean, that was such a horrendous time because none of us knew what we were going into. And I thought, oh my God, if I get this, I'm, you know, that's it, I'm, I'm done. So that was terrifying. And then I got the, the shielding letter. Then when I spoke to my nurse, she was like, oh, we're not quite sure. We don't think CML is any more at risk. You know, there was that, there was a kind of grey area there. However, um, the second time, so end of December or whatever, when we went back into lockdown and I got, I was back at work at that point because the first time I was on maternity leave. So it didn't quite matter as much. I was in anyway, but the second time I was back at work and because I had the letter from the government then, it was basically like I had to, you know, and I think at that stage, hospitals weren't keen to to say whether you should or shouldn't you know, for, for legal reasons, I guess they, they couldn't advise properly. So we just had to do what the government said. So I shielded from um, start of January until April. And it was slightly different because the second time around, you were allowed out for a walk. You were allowed to go to the shops if you needed. It was just mostly that you actually couldn't go into the workplace. So I did all of my interviews and things from, they all pretty much looked like this, so, which was... <laughs> Interesting. I got so sick of this out of my own living room on TV, but it was it was it was scary and it was a it was a very strange time. And I think there has been a lot of mixed messaging for everyone, hasn't there? But I think especially people like blood cancer patients, it's it's still a grey area. Yeah, I think the uncertainty is the biggest thing that people have talked to me about over the last sixteen months. It's not knowing firstly whether they should shield or shouldn't shield and, and the whole work thing I mean not everyone is as lucky as us to be able to work from home and it is very difficult were your work really supportive of that did you did you find it helpful that you know you didn't have to worry about all these extra things on top of having to shield yourself yeah they were they were they were really good and you know but we work in a, a busy newsroom so a lot of people were working from home. And then as they started to go back in, I found that quite difficult watching them all back in and out and about telling their stories. And I felt like a bit of a kind of hindrance, I think, at that point, because I felt I couldn't maybe do my job. You know, I, I could do it to an extent at home, but I couldn't go out and cover big stories, which you know, I would, I would normally doing, you know, big entertainment stories and things like that. So it was quite kind of difficult sitting at home and watching them all get on with it, which I'm sure will be an experience for so many people as well. But um, that side of it, I found tough, but they, yeah, they were great. You know, they were just like, you do what you have to do and, you know, it's, that's what you've been told and that's what the government have said and we have to abide by that. And, and that's what we did. Hopefully we will not long be, but we're not far away from sort of being rid of, of this. Is there sort of something in particular you looking forward to doing once we're allowed to get out and about a bit more freely? Well, I think when you have a little one, it's 
it's been a bit of a double-edged sword because that first year when we were in lockdown was lovely because I had more time with her because I was going to go back to work earlier you know I work on an entertainment program as well as news but um, it's all about what's going on in Scotland there was nothing going on in Scotland so there was nothing to go back for so I had more time with the baby and more time just us as instead of having to go out and about and see people and things, you know, so that was real quality time. However, now I feel like we are missing out on things and it's, it is getting better, obviously, but she's never been to the dreaded soft play and never did I think I would be dying to go to soft play and I'll probably regret it after the first time I go. But I, <laughs> I'm dying to take her to soft play. I just, I want to take her on holiday and I want to see her, you know, we've been to Northumberland to the beach. It's not the same as being, it's beautiful, <laughs> but it's not the same as being in Spain or Greece or, you know, and, and seeing her splash in a pool and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there are these things now that I feel like I just, I just want her to experience more so than me. Well, and for me to see it, because I think that's one thing that with the whole baby, actually, sorry, just to go off slightly on a tangent, when you have cancer, there is that slight thing in the back of my mind that if these drugs stop working and, you know, what what the worst outcome happens and I leave a child, you know, I, I brought her into this world knowing that that I've got cancer is that is that terrible. But a girl that I'm friends with, her both her parents have now sadly passed away, but her dad had chronic myeloid leukemia when she was younger. And I think he lived with it for like 17 years. And obviously that was a good while back. And she said to me, I would never change that time that I had with my dad for, for anything. So don't think like that, you know, and that those words just really, really stuck with me. So so yeah, I'm I just want to embrace every moment with her and make memories. So I'm hoping the world hurry up, hurries up and opens so that we can do that. Hopefully. I was in Scotland last weekend and it was lovely and I want more people to be able to see it. I was in Edinburgh and it's just yeah, nice and sunny. I'm sure it's not always sunny, but it was. No, it's it's sunny this week, which is is good. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, come visit us. It's lovely. <laughs> um you've given us a few tips as we've talked through um you know you've mentioned a couple of things that about sharing your story and how that was therapeutic is there anything else you wanted to tell say someone with cml has just been diagnosed is there anything you would have found helpful that you'd like to to share for any listeners i think ask as many questions as you can at the start because i didn't really do that because i was so overwhelmed and i think most people will be but that first you know initial diagnosis with the doctor and that 24 hours of not knowing I kind of wish I'd asked more rather than google that would also be my advice is I'd avoid or if you're going to do it go on things like the leukemia care website or you know go on kind of trusted websites for information rather than forums or, or facebook or whatever because there is a lot of kind of scary stuff out there that simply isn't true but also on the same hand look for for positive stories because there are a lot of people living their life and you know I'm proof of it 12 years on that you know I've just spent a weekend of doing all paddle boarding and partying with friends and things so I've not let it hold me back so it's scary take the time take you know I think I had six months my work were very supportive and I had six months off to kind of get my treatment right and I was going in for various kind of tests and things at, at that point I had six months off just to focus on that and focus on 
kind of getting myself into a good headspace and a good medical place before I went back to life. And I think if you can, um, if you can do that, if you're able to ha- to take some time to come to terms with it and get yourself on the right track, then I think that's a massive thing that'll that'll help. I think allowing yourself that time as well is important, even if you can't sort of separate yourself from work, but don't expect yourself to be a hundred percent because realistically you have still had a diagnosis of cancer yeah completely and allow yourself the down days because it is it is tough and it's not an easy thing to live with it physically it gets easier mentally it does as well but it it does linger there so don't feel down on yourself if you want to put your jammies on and watch love island as i'm about to do but (laughs) or whatever you want to do whatever kind of that's one thing i've always found actually is like completely mind-numbing you know tv that you don't have to think of i think when i was first diagnosed i had really bad insomnia because i could hear my heartbeat in my ear it was all to do with my blood pressure and things and so i couldn't really sleep and the only thing that i could watch was like episode upon episode of don't tell the bride because it was the most inoffensive program I knew there was not going to be anything in it that would upset me it was just such an easy watch and so find your don't tell the bride find something that is just lovely to watch and allow yourself to switch off there you go I'm gonna go away and watch some rubbish tv now I feel like you've given everyone a good reason to Laura thank you so much for your time today it's been really interesting conversation and thank you for for sharing some really difficult um topics there oh thank you Thank you for for all you guys do as well. It's um, yeah, it's a joy to be able to to share my experience and hopefully help others. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.